I'm John Doberstein, Senior Editor at No-Till Farmer, and welcome to the latest edition of our 2018 No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Healthy Plants Grow in Healthy Soils and Understanding Why That Is, is brought to you by Yetter Manufacturing Company. I encourage you to subscribe to this series currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes when they're released. If you have another app to use for listening to podcasts, let us know and we'll make an effort to get it listed there as well. I'd like to take a moment to thank Yetter Manufacturing Company for sponsoring today's episode. With a tradition of providing farmer solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter Manufacturing Company delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. When you know what lives and works in the soil, Jill Clapperton says it's much easier to understand how no-till and crop rotation work together to regenerate and maintain healthy, productive soils. Is the rhizosphere all Greek to you? Rhizo means root, and spear means everything that goes on around the root. Because rhizosphere interactions drive soil health, the principal scientist at Rhizoterra Inc. will help you understand the interactions between plants, soil, and soil organisms. Clapperton will discuss the animals at work underground and how no-till stabilizes the soil habitat so farmers and consumers can reap the benefits of rhizosphere processes, primarily how healthy, well-fed plants use nutrients effectively. Now let's listen in as Jill discusses the characteristics of healthy soils and the importance of building soil structure in creating a diverse, viable no-till system. Most of you have seen things like this. Um, and you got to ask yourself, well, if this is soil, then why are we treating it so poorly? And if it's the foundation of agriculture and our food system, then again, why do we treat it so poorly? We need to work on treating it a whole lot better. I start off with Gaia theory, whether there's a lot of debate about Gaia theory in the scientific community, but I like the idea that it's about everything is kind of connected and that everything that we do has consequences and has benefits. And it's about maximizing the benefits as opposed to and minimizing the consequences. So for me, this theory, the theory of Gaia, is a really important theory. Just to, at least it gets us thinking that everything is connected, and I think that's important. This past year, in the spring, I was in the Denver airport, and we were not, fly, we're not flying airplanes because there was a dust storm. You think that that doesn't help our cause as farmers when a whole bunch of people are grounded and can't fly anywhere, and they are blaming farmers for the dust. So this is another reason why we need to pay attention to what we're doing and stay, stick with the no-till and work with our cover crops and all these new techniques so that we can minimize erosion. 
because we're losing our potential. We're losing the productivity. And that's the thing that we can't afford to lose. And you know, especially when dust is blowing, think about what that is. That's the lighter part of the soil. Um, one of the farmers yesterday brought in soil that had never been plowed because it was all the stuff that had blown in along the fence line. And you could see the difference between what was in his field and what was along the fence line. We want to minimize that. We want to bring that back. We want to regenerate our soil so that the whole field looks the same and we're not digging by the fence line to find the good soil. So, healthy soil. Well, I put biology at the top of that because it's the biology that really unites the chemical and the physical properties of the soil. And I'm not going to go through so much of that today, but the important thing to know is that it's the soil biology that drives all that. Soil biology, like the earthworms and the mites and the columbulins and the protozoa, that make the soil structure. And the fungi that net the particles together and hold them there so that we start to have really good aggregate stability. So they really impact the physical part of the soil. Chemical, well, you're not going to cycle stuff if you're not having the biology to move it around. The important part about all of this, too, is about the predators. And we don't often think about soil below ground predator-prey relationships, but predator-prey relationships are really important below ground. You've got a lot of bacteria growing. You've got a lot of fungi growing. Something needs to eat them and recycle the nutrients so that the plants can take them up. So we need to pay attention to those predator-prey relationships. So what characterizes a healthy soil? We've got a lot of talk about soil health these days. NRCS has put together a really big program on soil health now. And a lot, there's a lot of new people involved. They've hired. Um, so you're going to hear a lot more about soil health. And they're going to be pushing that pretty hard. But for me, what really characterizes is good soil structure. It's about the habitat. Soil is a habitat. So what are the things that make a habitat great? Think about this as a below ground city. What gives us the infrastructure? What allows things to move around quickly and get to, the, get to the resource patches and things? That's what we're looking for. And then when we, get, when we have a really good habitat, then we have a lot of services that it provides. And these are things we need. Living in areas that we have access to the Mississippi, into the Great Lakes, all these things are important. We need to think about these things a little bit more. And then, of course, it has a diversity of organisms. It doesn't have just one. Because where do you go in nature? Look at a grassland, look at a forest. Where do you see just one plant species? You don't. You always see at least two or three. And actually, most, plant, most native areas have at least 50 species. Now, we're going to get there? Maybe not, but that's all right. And healthy, nutrient-dense plants. Because the last part of it is, is that we need food that's good for us. And people, there's a number of people in here that are livestock producers. And so they're rationing. They're looking at what's in their rations for their animals and whatnot. But how many of you really look at what you put in your mouth and really look at the food and say, well, OK, you know, today I'm going to get this many nutrients? Well, we don't do that. So, but as farmers, this has to become implicit in what we do, in my view. So when we're thinking about healthy soils, we're also thinking about things like this. A handful of no-till soil. It should be crawling, absolutely crawling. There should be stuff all over it. Now, 
the hard part about soils is that it's something we can't see very easily because almost everything in there is small with the exception of earthworms and the roots. But most of the stuff in there is really tiny. The microbial activity, and, um, the bacteria and the fungi and the protozoa, those all require a microscope. These also require a microscope, just not as a powerful one. So when we think about this, just this whole slide, there wouldn't be a space in between if we included the bacteria and the protozoa and the fungi in there. Not one little space. Now we have to look at them close up because that's just part of what I do. I had these, I used to work for Ag Canada. For 16 years I was the rhizosphere ecologist there. And um, we took these beautiful scanning electron micrographs so that we could get close up and in person with these creatures. And you know, and now when I look at some of these sci-fi movies, and you know the bugs and things like that. I was like, oh, I recognize that. You know, <laughs> I'm sure they've been watching. So, what characterizes a healthy soil, as well? So we're going to keep on that. Well, good. This goes again. Good structure. We're going to emphasize that good structure. We want to have an arrangement of soil particles. Now, part of that is, is I want a continuous soil pore network. I do. I want that. I want that because I want things to be zooming around. I want everybody to have access to everything. I want that infrastructure there so that the bacteria are being eaten up, the fungi are being eaten up, the nematodes are moving through there. And that's the other part about this is that most of the stuff that really eats up your primary production, the bacteria and the fungi, they can't burrow. So they need the things that burrow the fungi that make the beautiful soil structure, the mycorrhizas that work on the soil structure, they need them to make that soil structure so that they can move around and eat more of the bacteria and the fungi and turn over the nutrients. Now here's the good part about all that. They also concentrate them. They're concentrators. They're going around concentrating the nutrients around the roots. What else are they doing? They're holding, they're producing, when we get into the rhizosphere, we're producing gels and, and, and other sticky things that actually hold the soil to the root so that the root can always feed itself, always get water. That's what these pores are about. That's what a continuous soil pore network is so important. It's also about allowing the plant access to water and nutrients so that even if it's dry, they never run out. And just like a great city, this is infrastructure. And the cities with the better infrastructure that move the traffic around better, people brag about them. It's like, this is a great city. Well, let's create this great city below ground. And this is what it should look like here. See this continuous soil pore network? Here's the city infrastructure moving around. And then we get these, these places where there used to be like a columbolin poop there. Somebody said to me when I was in Arkansas, a woman came up to me and she goes, I've never been at a presentation where somebody could say poop so many times. And because these are all little poops right here. Um, this is columbola dung right here. And then you can see this, and it's eaten away now because it's digested. And so it's been recycled back in, but we still have this poor network. And now we have like a lake or we just have a reservoir where we can store things and move on. So that's what this is all about. When a plant has good soil structure, it's going to look more like this. If I have a drought, I still have access to a lot of things going on there. I can still move my roots around. I can still find little pockets. I'm still looking for things. The other thing is, is that I've got the mycorrhizal fungi associated with me. 
So that fungus is going around looking for water too. Because mycorrhizal fungi can't grow without a host, so they're making sure that that host is growing really well. This plant here is going to struggle. But here's the good news about all of this, is that as long as we keep growing plants, we will keep benefiting the soil structure. So once, every time you put a plant in the ground, you start to change your soil structure. That's the rise of your processes going on. So beans, you put beans in the ground, the ground gets all soft and mellow. You put corn in the ground, it gets all hard and very structured. That is a rhizosphere effect. That's the microbes and the animals and the plants and the soils all working together to give you that structure. So when we're building soil structure, remember that your soil is a habitat. And so you're building the habitat. That's what you're doing. You're building a habitat. This is the end of all of that right there is you're going to build a better and more efficient soil agroecosystem so that we have nutrient efficiency, water use efficiency, because that's the things that we're really striving for now. And those are the things that we're, we're going to spend a lot more time um, looking at. Now, accessing nutrients in subsoil, getting those roots through there, starting to build soils deeper down. Look at the, look at the carbon pattern streaking through this soil. I love this. All those fine roots, that's, out of, that's a pasture. This man in Manitoba took over a soil that was had been really poorly handled and was really degrading and put a pasture on it. And within two years, we start to see this. And look at how wide this channel is here. And now we've got a new root growing right through it. So we're making, this soil is actually building. And we're starting to get carbon all the way down. This is at the four foot mark. So now we're really streaking it all the way down to the bottom of the profile. As long as I have something living down here, I have soil bacteria. I have soil biology moving down in that, in that area. I have things starting to change that soil structure, loosen it up, starting to create a soil-poor network. And deep roots can capture these leach nutrients that we have. Because most of the time, sitting at three feet down, sometimes less. We've got a lot of nutrients sitting there. We need to tap into them. They're a resource. They're a reserve. And so getting deep roots, like David Brandt talked about his sunflowers. Sunflowers have these deep roots. They can have very, very deep roots. Now, one of the things I've been noticing, because I've been looking at a lot of roots, obviously, is that um, if we have a lot of nutrients in the top, we'll get quite a mat of roots, really, within the top three inches, <clears throat> and then we don't have stuff going down. So if we want roots to go down and start really exploring too, and that's important for our cover crops, sometimes we have to make sure that our fertility isn't as high as we'd like it if we want them to go down. And that's important. So we need to think about that's the wonders of the new in technology that we have today is that we can place things where we really want them. And so embrace that new technology and what we were capable of doing. It's a really fun time right now. It's about, how do I measure soil health? Sheldon was talking to me this morning about it. And he says, like, OK, well, these soil health tests, what do they mean? I'm going to work on them a little bit. You know, I, need to, I want to know how to know if my soils are really healthy and how to do that. Well, one of the easiest ways you can do that is your earthworms. A lot of you have night crawlers here um, in your fields because you have enough moisture for them and whatnot. Then you can count the number of middens in a square yard. 
And you can easily do that. You want to make sure that you're at about four at least. Um, and then if you, want, if you don't want to do that and you want to look at the earthworkers that are in there, then just go into the crop row, put a shovel in the ground, flip it over, and you want to count five earthworms. It doesn't matter what kind they are, you just want to count five. If you count more than five, excellent. If you count less than five, you've got some work to do. And if you can always go to a next spot and go, okay, well, I had eight there, you can take an average if you really need to. There's a reason why roots follow earthworm channels. There really is. And part of it is, is that earthworms, the channels that earthworms have, they leak a, a, a carbon off their skin. So you know how they're slimy. Well, that, that is a carbohydrate. And that carbohydrate also has some amino acids in it. And it also has ammonia in it if they're well-fed, and nitrate if they're not so well-fed. And so that lining of this burrow is actually really good for those plants. The other thing that lining does is that the bacteria that like to grow along the lining are plant growth-promoting rhizobacteria. So it's good for the root to grow down there. It's beneficial. That's the whole point of this. Everything is trying to work together to make this really great. So more roots. Former root channels are pathways. Not just for the root itself, but water and nutrients and air, all good things. This is a really important thing, that this is preferential flow of water. And the other thing is, is that if they're running out of water, these roots can easily move down to subsoil, so they're not using so many resources to actually get to where they really need to go. Because that's the other thing. Let's think about plants. They're stuck here in one place. They can't move. They can't run away from anything. They have to defend, but they're not passive defenders. They're actually going out, they're sending signals out that say, hey, I need to find something. I need to find stuff that actually benefits me. So they're sending out signals that say, hi, I want a plant growth promoting rhizobacteria. And they're preferentially trying to attract Bacillus thuringiensis, or Bt, in and around their roots because they know it will protect them from grazing. They're attracting mycorrhizal fungi because they know that they will help them defend themselves against disease and, and drought and have more nutrient density. Wow, this plant is really trying to attract things. They're also trying to repel things. They're sending out horrible chemicals, flavones and things like really complicated molecules that say, stay away from me because I will kill you. So they're doing all of that because they're trying to defend their space. They're trying to stay healthy. So the whole idea here is we create this habitat for them, this beautiful infrastructure. The roots will get easily to water. They'll get easily to nutrients. All this system will be working together for, this, for the betterment of our agriculture. So now I'm going to tell you a little story, because I do like to tell stories. The feet, uh, the feet here belong to a dairy farmer named Simon Park. And he lives in Australia. This is out his back window. He actually is on the edge of town. The town is called Wanthaggy, and it's in East Gippsland in Victoria, Australia. He was feeding his cattle um, seed rations, like um, from the sweepings off the floor of a seed plant. He noticed, and he got these strips out here, and he's trying to make a big change. He says, you know, I'm, he dairy, he's a pasture dairy. And he said, I, I need, my grasses are terrible, I'm, you know, I'm not getting the productivity, calving rates are down, holding on to pregnancies, it's really a hard time with it. He said, I think my cows are really struggling, and so am I. So here we are going to make a change. Well, I said, well, let's go out and look. 
Now, one thing as a scientist, that, and this was a, you know, I didn't know he was going to invite all the neighbors over and all his dairy group over. And so I said, well, you know, we'll just go out and dig in here and see what, what you know, between these rows where we've got canola growing and, and in between where we've just got the ryegrass. We're just going to go and have a look. And the next thing I know, there's all these people around. Well, I don't know really what's going to happen, you know. I'm like, oh, no, I hope this works. So we go out and we dig in the ryegrass here. And Simon is like jumping away on it and trying to get this thing down and finally gets it in and you can see this root ball here. You just look at that root ball and you go, wow, there's a lot of compaction there, there's not much going on. And then we dug where he had these canolas growing and this happened. We had streaking of carbon, we had more roots, we had some earthworms actually and it was like, wow, okay. So one of the things here, and I know there's some dairymen here, is you can take your no-till no drill and just go straight into the pasture and actually stitch plants in so that you can break things up, so that you can create better soil structure. And that's what you're doing with your cover crop. As a row crop farmer, you're putting plants in that are going to benefit your subsequent crop. Now the other thing is that when we go back, we go back here, we start to have structure. If we have structure like this where everything is tight-packed and it's really hard and it's heavy and wet and awful um, and we have something that's a lot looser here then we have more of these guys zooming around in there, these protozoa and they will eat a tremendous amount of bacteria and turn things over and they are tiny little nitrogen concentrators but who can afford to lose 45 percent of their nitrogen? That's what these guys are doing. Now the other thing is is that bacteria can outcompete a plant for nutrients every time, every time. They can grow a whole new generation in less than 24 hours, so they can grow fast. So if the nutrients, if the nutrients are there, they are going to use them. So we really need to have good soil structure in order to recycle the nutrients that the bacteria have gotten our starved our plants. We'll rejoin Jill's fascinating description of soil health functions in a moment but I wanted to take time to once again thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing Company, for supporting our No-Till Farmer podcast series. With a tradition of providing farmer solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer, and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter Manufacturing Company delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Now let's get back to Jill Clapperton's talk as she discusses how above ground diversity is a reflection of below ground diversity and the importance of underground root canopies, soil properties, and soil food webs to critical functions such as nutrient mineralization. You know, more than 20 years and um, took the cattle off when he moved on to when he took over from his dad. And now he's put cattle back on so he can use his cover crops. Cattle prices are good. He's put cover crops on because he, although he had a lot of bacteria, I mean, well, for every one part, for every one part soil, he had 
almost 10 parts of bacteria. So, I mean, he, he, his ratio was really huge. He had biological activity that was outstanding, really outstanding. But he wasn't recycling it. We couldn't find predators. So what was happening, he says, I don't understand. Like, I'm supposed to have this great soul structure, and all this is supposed to be happening. I have all this, you're telling me I have all this biological and microbiological activity, all these microbes, but how come they're not recycling? How come I'm still having to put all this fertilizer on all the time in order to keep the plants from starving? And what we figured out is he was growing microbial biomass, but he wasn't turning it over. And so we started putting cover crops in there, started to create that soil structure, because what had been happening? More spring rain. Have to get on the fields early. Compaction. And we're in the Palouse I mean, this is steep hills. You've all seen John Ashelman's pictures. And so he was creating a lot more compaction for himself. So cover crops, and he was looking for ways. And yeah, he even went and did some tillage just to break up the, the compaction layer at four inches in order to get productivity back in order to do that. Now, that wasn't something he wanted to do, but we got the cover crops in there now too. We've got the cattle in there now as well, and things are looking up. But that's the point I'm making is that do not underestimate the power of having some of these little guys chewing up your bacteria. You need to do it. Now, recently I was in Arkansas, and this is one of the things I saw. We were burning straw. Now, the point I'm making here is I know that a lot of you, none of you here are growing rice, probably. Well, that's not true. I know that it might be somebody here who is growing rice. But most of you are not growing rice. But what I'm talking about is not unique to any one crop, and it's not unique to any one soil, and it's not unique to anywhere particularly in the world. I'm talking about processes, processes that will work anywhere. Now, maybe the same things don't do the same processes because, you know, the good thing is, is that Mother Nature built in a lot of redundancy. So in every good soil, there's about five or six things that could do the same thing. So if it's too dry, there's still something there. If it's too wet, there's still something there, you know, ha working on those processes. So you've still got services. And that's the point, important point about biodiversity, is that you have services no matter what happens. There's a lot of resiliency and there's a lot of resistance built into the system. So rice straw is really ropey and dense. I mean, you get in there and you realize the dense growth, the, the straw is so ropey. I mean, it's amazing. <clears throat> and they've spent a lot of money leveling the paddocks and then making sure that their levees are really tight. So you've got a lot of water in there. You've got inundation for a lot of the year. And you, get, you can get a really big problem with a lot of immobilization. Now, part of it with this much straw and why they're burning it is because they can't get it to break down. What is the number one problem I hear? Can't break down my straw. Well, OK, there are some reasons for that. One of them is, is we get into BT corn, and BT corn was designed to resist things that bore into the stem, and so it can fall down. So it doesn't fall down because it's really strong. Now, Bt also, well, you, it resists insects, right? Well, most of the stuff that breaks down straw are insects. Kalimbala are related to insects. Mites are related to insects. Earthworms are not. But they don't poke holes in the stems. So now we don't have anything poking holes in the stems. 
So now what we have to do is rely on the fungi, which we had to rely on before anyways, because fungi, what breaks down trees? Okay, the ultimate big carbon source, woody carbon source, are trees. The first thing that breaks down trees are fungi. And trees wouldn't break down without fungi. So we need to have the fungi. Now the good news is that most of you are no-till farmers, so in a no-till situation, you've actually got a lot more fungi than the guy who is in a tillage situation. So you're going to have fungi that start breaking this down. Now what's the other problem here? I need nitrogen. Now we had a big discussion about this yesterday. I need to have enough nitrogen to break down the, the straw, but I can't have so much that I start to break down everything. So all, everything in life, it's a balance. You've got to find that balance. The balance between having enough nitrogen so I don't have immobilization and not going over the edge where I don't have any residues left so I'm not covering the soil, so I'm not insulating it and armoring it. And people go, well, why do I care about having all this residue on the ground, armoring my soil? Well, think about this from a temperature standpoint. Do you all like to have big fluctuations? During the day, you want it really hot in the day and then really cold at night? No, you like to have it kind of, you know, just slightly undulating, a little bit warmer, a little cooler to sleep, those kinds of things. Well, plants don't like that either. They don't like these big swings in the day. You leave your soil unarmored, and then during the day it just bakes. And sometimes it gets so hot that it kills everything in the top layers, and so everything has to go down because they have to try and get it cool. And then what happens? Okay, now we've got it, yeah, we've got the, the soil, it's heated up in the sun, and then, and then we have it too cold as we get later at night or later into the fall or it gets cool, too cool in the spring. We need to actually have that armor so that we maintain better temperatures. So we maintain, what I'm going to tell you is physiological active temperature. What is that temperature? 70 to 75 degrees. Well, actually, it's 68 to 75 degrees. That's the temperature that we, everything is going to work absolutely optimum at, because it's designed for that. Just like you are designed to work at body temperature. You get a spike of fever, and you know you've got a problem. Well, these soils get spiked with fever, get too hot, and then they have some problems adapting too. So. Think about those kinds of things when we're breaking down the residues. So how do we do that? Well, one of the things we need to think about are root canopies. And this is where we're going to take the next step past and start thinking about how can plants share. Now, we're not there yet. There's very few people that are really thinking a lot about double, like having corn and soybeans in the same field, or wheat and soybeans, or having, um, I've got farmers that have chickpeas and flax and things like that all mixed together and are doing fine, actually. But let's just talk about what that's, what's going on there. When we have a root canopy, and this is a beautiful slide, and I think you've probably seen it a lot because in a lot of the soil health talks we see this slide. What you've got, you, this shows you all the different kinds of root architectures. And they're all different kinds. You see this, we don't have very much here. Now we have really fibrous roots. We have deep fibrous roots. Now we have not so many fibrous roots, but they're very deep. We need to think about growing a root canopy. So when we think about cover crops, if we really want to change the system fast, really want to build infrastructure, really want to bring up this stuff that's way down here and pull it up so we can get after it, we need to create root canopies. 
Um, and they can be really beautiful. This is for Laurent. This is from France. Fava beans. Fava beans, fava beans, um, bell beans. Yeah, all different names. Beautiful big nodules. Sun hemp. Woolly pod vetch. Persian clover. See the different roots? All I want you to do is see the different root structure. All of them are doing different things. These are all, they're all fixing nitrogen, but they all have a different structure. Your Persian clover. Now, if I went through all the clovers, they all have a different root system. Subterranean clover actually has a growing point that's below the soil. So it's one, and, and never grows more than an inch high. So it's perfect for growing between the rows, for keeping a living mulch. Now, look at this side here. This is what your cover crop should look like. All these different kinds of roots all interacting together. Now, what is happening there? They're all touching one another. They're sharing. You know how you have the phone that you can, you can touch phones and, and share information? These roots are touching and sharing information. That's what's going on there. They are also all linked with mycorrhizal fungi that we can't see. And so they're all sharing carbon and nitrogen and moving and water around for them. So they're all way healthier together than they are singly by themselves. That's another reason to have mycorrhiza and soil biology and have a better soil network so that these guys can all touch each other and talk. Here's mycorrhizal fungi. These arbuscules in here. Now this is actually inside the root. So mycorrhizal fungi live inside the root. They're one of the few fungi that the plant actually tolerates and actually wants. So no immune response, nothing. The plant goes, yeah, sure, I'll take you. And if you're growing corn, then the corn goes, please, come and get me. Because corn, all warm season grasses need mycorrhizas to grow their optimum because they've actually co-evolved with them. So here's your mycorrhizal fungi. This is an arbuscule. It's in the cell, and this is where it's sharing. The photosynthesis from the plant is being traded. Mycorrhiza are your carbon traders. They're trading carbon from the plant for nutrients that they pick up while they can extend the area of the root. So they're trading phosphorus and zinc and hard-to-get micronutrients and water for photosynthesis. And how do they function best? At physiological temperature. So their movement through their hyphae and into the root is best at soil physiological temperature. So roots really do these services. These are the kinds of services they provide. Uptake of water, nutrients, holding the plant in place. That can't be... Um, I did a workshop um, in July and um, I had farm, farmers brought in corn root balls from all over. And we were talking a lot about prop roots because it was really interesting. This poor farmer from North Dakota, and he had just, his corn had been inundated with water. And hit, the roots were terrible. I mean, he had this puny-looking corn plant. And, you know, and kudos to him for actually, because there were all these Iowa farmers, and they all had these beautiful big root balls and everything. And here's this guy standing there like this. You know, it's like, whoa, that even stinks. And, but, you know, he said, well, I don't know what to do because, you know, I had all this water. And, but what was really interesting is that when we put them all together, we could actually see, and they all told the story. The plants told the story of what this was happening in the soil. So 
And um, in one of the no-till farmer magazines, you see Sheldon and I talking to one another. And Sheldon's root ball, he had had all these cover crops, and he had all these prop roots within the, the first six inches of the plant, the bottom six inches, there were just nodes of prop roots coming out because every time the, the, the cover crop had touched, the old cover crop had touched, we put more prop roots out to actually mine those residues. And that's what we could see. We could see, you could tell the farmers who had cover crops and the ones that didn't by the number of prop roots. You could tell what had happened. The one guy had had a storm and had blown them over and so the, all the prop roots were growing off the other side of opposite from where the wind had pushed it so it would push it back up. So you see, plants are really active. They're doing a lot of this. Now the other thing is that the roots themselves are going to influence the soil structure because the roots are actually going to leak organic acids out of their roots so they can get more phosphorus. They're doing that. They're doing that actively. That's what they're doing for you. They're trying to get more phosphorus. They're leaking organic acids, amino acids, nitrogen. They're leaking carbohydrates. All of that is actually affecting the aggregate. So they're either going to make them bigger or make them smaller, depending on what they need to get. Sunflowers are amazing at doing that. Um, but they're also amazing because they attract all these pollinators. And we've got some bee problems now. So growing sunflowers can have a lot of advantage. Um, they're also, as we found out, um, very photogenic. And so um, for the first time in, in and around the Reardon area, which is just immediately west of Spokane, Washington, I was growing these 80-day um, sunflowers. And I had these strips of them, because we were just going to see if we could grow them and, um, and see if we could take them to seed and, and, that, and see how much water they took out of our ground, because we're in a low rainfall area. And, um, and so we had these sunflowers. Well, I also had a pullout strip because this is part of my experimental farm. So I had this pullout strip for cars. Families would get out of the car with a photographer, and the photographer would pull up beside it. And we were watching from the seed plant. It's like, oh, here comes another family. And they'd be out in the sunflowers taking pictures. This is the family picture in the sunflowers. It was hilarious. Um, and then we realized that, well, not only had we growing, trying to grow this crop, but we also had this really this place where families could come and get their picture taken. And so I don't know how many Christmas cards this year had my sunflowers on them, but I suspect that it was quite a few. Um, the other thing that we did learn from our sunflower experiment was that um, uh, the sunflowers are not very far from the seed plant um, at Reardon Seed Company. And, um, and so there's piles of grain here and there, and there's a lot of seed around the place. And then there's this pond that has all these blackbirds. <clears throat> and um, so when the sunflowers really got seeds on them, the blackbirds descended. And uh, it was amazing. The, all that was left was these little areas here, because they were all perched on the edge, and they'd eaten everything that they could get at except for the centers. So um, that was, I've put up raptor stands now. And uh, we're going to get birds of prey going after those little devils. David Tillman is one of the foremost ecologists in the world. And he's done a lot of grassland work. Um, what this really says is that by simplifying, we have destabilized our systems. So by putting diversity back into the system, we stabilize it again. So again, we're building a resilience and resistance. And most importantly, nutrient and water use efficiency. That's the key here.
One of the most interesting points Jill made, I think, is the importance of having enough residue on the soil surface to protect fields from the elements and help maintain a soil's optimum physiological temperature of 68 to 75 degrees Fahrenheit. Protecting soils from the elements should serve no-tillers well as they strive to improve mineralization. If you're looking for more ways to improve soil health on your own farm, consider what the National No-Tillage Conference has to offer. Early bird registration has opened for the 2019 National No-Tillage Conference to be held January 8th through the 11th, 2019 in Indianapolis, Indiana. When you register by January 31st, you'll receive the lowest rate offered, $259, a $130 savings off the full rate. Call 262-432-0388. Again, that's 262-432-0388. Or visit notillconference.com today to secure your savings. Now let's return to the program and listen as Jill Clapperton discusses the importance of having adequate biodiversity on farms to encourage beneficial rhizosphere interactions, such as plant growth promotion, soil stability, water uptake, nutrient availability, and biocontrol, and also why you should care about the quality of food you're producing and the difference it could make in your pocketbook in the future. Soil food webs, mainly driven by root exudates. Number one thing that drives soil carbon is root exudates. That is what is it? It's, it's dissolved organic matter. So it's like pouring all this really great amino acids, organic acids. And that's the other thing. People talk about sugars. I hear a lot about sugars, and I'm going to feed my microbes. Well, actually, the microbes are great. They're going to grow no matter what. Bacteria will grow almost no matter what we do to them. That's why we use them for bioremediation. So we're going to always have bacteria in there. Um, but what you really wanted to be doing is feeding your your, your animals that are going to recycle all of this. Root exudates are the number one thing that really build carbon in the soils um, and build soil organic. And of course, you have the letter and the residues above ground. Think about your roots as residue, right? Think about your roots as residue because they are the most available source of residue to things in the soil that are recycling. The above ground stuff is just icing on the cake. Okay, and these, they vary in availability, accessibility, that's okay because we don't want them all available at once. This slide is, this comes from very old data, it's from 1972, and John Pate from Australia did this work, and this is really important work. Every plant leaks its own signature of carbon. That carbon is organic acids, amino acids, nitrates, phosphates, things like that. I mean, they all leak out of the roots, and they actually, Proton pumping. So if the, if the area around the root is too basic and I need to take up different things, then I will actually pump protons out there so that I can grab onto some anions and pull them back in. The plant is actively deciding on what it needs. It's actually pushing calcium pumps, proton pumps, things like that out of the roots in order to actually grab onto things and bring them back in. So it's not static. Now, not surprisingly, oats really like nitrate. Barley, not so much. Corn is also a big nitrate user. We know a lot of nitrogen, but it also has a lot of nitrate in the root exudates itself. 
What surprised me was white clover. Clover, so much nitrate. Lupins, not so much. Lupins are another legume. Peas and beans, another legume too. But look at this. I start using peas and beans, and I get four different nitrogen-rich compounds being exuded from the roots, not just three. In this case, mostly one. What we want to see is we want to see things like this, where we get four. We get a lot of three. We don't want a lot of nitrate. What we want are a lot more of these green, yellow, and red bars. So beans are lovely. All of you are growing soybeans, but why not put more beans in, mung beans, things like that that grow really fast. So this is the kind of thing that we can use to build our cover crops, build what we want. These are fava beans, bell beans. Um, we've started growing these in our area. Um, the inoculants we're struggling with a little bit um, to get good nodulation, but they're kind of an amazing bean. They're a cold bean. So a lot, that's the thing that we were looking for, are legumes that really will take the cold, particularly beans. <clears throat> and um, these will actually don't mind the cold weather to be seeded into, and then they like it really hot in the summer. So it works really well. Beautiful flowers. Um, problem is they're big seed, um, and so we're struggling with a little of the seeding, but we're working on it. Food webs. Again, soil carbon from roots. Look at this, more stable aggregates than anything from above ground. So again, pay attention to roots. They only account for this of the total plant weight, but they contribute 12% of the organic carbon, 31% of the soluble organic carbon, and 52% of the microbial biomass C. Roots, we're paying attention to the roots. What kind of roots? And, we're, and look at this, I always have to show this one. But look at the chompers on this. These are the guys that are chewing things up. They're the recyclers. They're leaving beautiful soil structure because the, when they poop out, they leave these pellets that create more structure. So all the time, we're getting better soil structure. We're recycling all those things. <clears throat> um, was kind of surprised. So I was watching cotton being harvested. This was my first time. I'd never seen cotton being harvested. And um, so I was driving from Memphis to Jonesboro, and, and it was that cotton harvest time, so I was really, and, and all of a sudden I realized, I was like, oh my gosh, this is cotton. And then the harvesting out there, so I pulled off, so I got off the interstate, drove up the side road, and pulled over to the side, and of course, you know, you know, when, when farmers are harvesting, because we've all harvested, it's like, get out of the way. Because we are on a mission here, and it's going to rain in the next two days, and we're getting this off. So I made sure I was pulled right off to the side of the road, and so I was watching all these big, big machinery go by, but it was great to see. So then I started looking around in the residues from the cotton, and the uh, guy says, oh, nothing grows there. Uh, it's just dead. And I went, well, no. See this? This is not nothing. That's actually earthworm castings. And when you see something that's round, Mother Nature doesn't do everything, anything in straight lines. Everything is, nature is always like round and, and sort of doesn't go straight. So what you see here, these are all earthworm castings in and amongst the, the uh, residues that's left over from the cotton. So even cotton that can be really hard on the soil, we do it right. And actually, I think, and I said this when I was in Arkansas, I think there's a lot of room for having living, color, living covers, living mulches in cotton. I think we can do a good job with that. 
amount of carbon from corn roots, and I put this in because this is corn roots and we're in corn country, the amount of carbon from corn roots and corn root exudates, look at that, 1.5 to 3.5 times higher than that from the stover. So again, don't focus on the above ground stuff, focus on the below ground stuff. I know we need the yield and whatnot, but your yield is going to be determined by what's going on below ground. Okay, and, e, and this is another thing. So once we start to really drive the below ground work, start to drive things going below ground, we start to release more. So this is the part about everything being connected. Now we start to pay attention to the roots, we start to get more carbon going down, we start to get that canopy. So what's going on there? So we start to get a lot of carbon dioxide building. If we've got a good canopy of leaves, we get carbon dioxide building up underneath the leaves. We get a lot more photosynthesis. We've got the mycorrhizae, so we have even more photosynthesis. We're and, and warm season plants like corn, when they have a lot of photosynthesis, they start shuttling amino acids and organic acids and carbohydrates down to the roots. If they're colonized by mycorrhiza, then there's more amino acids and organic acids. So now they're changing the pH of the soil. Oh, cool. Now when they change the pH of the soil, I get more plant growth promoting rhizobacteria living in and around there. So my plants are healthier. Do you see how this is all going together? And I have better soil structure. I have more protozoa. So now I'm really cooking with gas. When we start to have this, the other thing that you can do is you can get chlorophyll meters are not that expensive. Some people are using bricks meters. But you can actually look, you start getting more chlorophyll in the, root, in the leaves, you actually can convert more amino acids into more essential amino acids and vitamins. And the mycorrhizal fungi will also, because they increase photosynthesis in even cool season plants, you'll actually end up getting more phosphorus, calcium, and boron. So what does boron do in your corn plant? It fills the cob to the very end. It's important for flowering. And so you need all of this to make sure that your plant's really healthy. And then, you know, the thing is, we're gonna, plants are going to take up things more effectively and efficiently when they live in a biological system. They are, because, you know, what's really cool about that is all the bacteria and all the fungi and all these little mites and everything that's left over all, come, all gets finished off in a form that the plants can use immediately. And it's all in and around the roots. So I'm just going to introduce us to some of the things that plants do, and we'll talk more in the classroom. But here was a little cover crop study that we did in the 90s. And son, somebody asked me yesterday, it was Sheldon, he said, well, how long have you been working on cover crops? Well, we started working on cover crops in the mid-90s. Um, and these, we, we, we put together three different species. We figured three we could work with, and we just picked them what we thought would go together based on plant properties. And what we were looking for was a ratio of dry matter yield to nitrogen yield. So what we wanted was almost a one for one. So for every pound of dry matter, we had a pound of nitrogen. So we were looking for something that was more like this and more like this. That's what we were looking for. And the other thing we were looking for then was, well, how much phosphorus and zinc in that do we put in? Well, here's four that's one-to-one -one for nitrogen, and here's nine that was one-to-one -one for nitrogen. Phosphorus is down here, but then some of our mixtures had a lot of phosphorus in them. It's like, okay, so what's happening there? Well, the ones that have phosphorus in them are lentils and phacelia. 
lots and lots of phosphorus, um, and, and oilseed radish and hairy veg, lots and lots and lots of phosphorus. So you see, you can mix plants together and have all sorts of things start happening. So these are the mixes that we put together here. This one I'm going to talk a lot more about. This one is something that you never do. Don't do that unless you have cattle and you never want to crop that field again. The, the rest of these are all fine. Um, lupins are a bit hard to grow because you need to have lower pH soil. They just simply won't grow in, in soil that's um, really above 5.5 pH, and even then they struggle. Um, so now you see, so nine was the one we looked at, that subterranean clover, sorghum, sudan, and buckwheat. This was really interesting. When the bugs got the buckwheat, the sorghum sudan took off. So the one thing I'd say is that, um, you know, all these things go together. Is this the perfect thing for having a lot of growth? No. But I would always, I like the buckwheat in things. Lentils, I put a lot of lentils into my mixes. Phacelia is really good if you have problems and you're trying to aggregate your soil. So then what happened next? Okay, I'm in a dry land area and everybody goes, you are nuts to be planting cover crops, but I did anyways. These yields on eight inches of water are not bad, by the way. Um, and what we've got here, so now, look at, now we looked at the nutrient density and we started to look at this. This one here, number six. Well, let's go back to number six. Faba beans, peas, and oats. So for nutrient density and good yield, look at that. Then we get high in potassium, sulfur, magnesium. So we actually started to calculate this. Look at this one here. High in sulfur, really high in sulfur. High in sulfur. Oil, seed, radish, and hairy veg. Not only was it high in phosphorus, but it was also very high in sulfur. This is what happens when you grow chicory. Chicory is outstanding forage, an absolutely outstanding forage. Uh, it's great for bees, too. The bees love it. It's really bad. You never get rid of it. And this is like, we even went out and gloved this with Roundup. I mean, anything to try and get rid of it. And it's got such a deep taproot. I mean, it's awesome in that regard. It's beautiful deep taproot. It's like, but you know what? It, it definitely responds like Canada thistle. It's terrible. And I just put this in because Phacelia is so good for also for um, pollinators and, and beneficial insects like this ladybug. We just had them swarming with ladybugs and predator bugs. So we didn't have aphid problems or anything. So rhizosphere, folks. This is your rhizosphere. Plants, organisms, um, and, and your, so your soil your organisms, your plants, all working together as one. That's the important part of this. This is what drives what's going on. Here we go. So this is your root exudates. You've got symbiosis coming in here, your rhizobium, your mycorrhizas, nutrients, water. Of course, this is bringing in water and nutrients as well. Plant growth promoting substances here. Now, what's happening there? Bacteria that want this root to branch and want it to go faster so they have more habitat. That's what's going on here. Growth promoting, growth inhibiting substances because the diseases are trying to catch on too and they're going, you need to slow down because I need to get on. The bacteria are going, you need to speed up because I need more habitat. You want this happening and less of this. This is the rhizosphere, the root, the soil attached to the root, and the soil influenced by the root. 
This is chickpeas, desi chickpeas growing with wheat. Um, this was a little experiment. I thought this, you know, I was just playing with this working. You can see that I started to really break down the residue because my straw is breaking down. My wheat, this is DNS wheat, high protein wheat. That wheat went 14%. Um, terrible yield, 40 bushels, but that was better than all the other yield. So I wish you around 32. It was a bad year. And I hadn't sprayed a herbicide. I actually made money. It was amazing. The point I'm making here is that legumes, rather than just the diversity, so this is where I hear people, I need a lot of diversity. I want to be like nature. You don't necessarily have to be, but you do need to have a legume to drive all of this. It's about how many legumes. It's about the proportion of legumes to carbon, cereals to legumes, and, and oil seeds. You need to balance it so you don't go over the top with the nitrogen and assimilate all the carbon from the residues. And you need to have enough legumes in there to actually assimilate the carbon. That's what we talked about before. This is buckwheat and triticale, or triticale. Um, this was a field um, that they were actually going to harvest together. This is in northern Montana. It was beautiful to look at. Um, and the harvest actually went really well. So one of those things that you can think about. Um, and actually, what was even cooler about that, that this was winter triticale. And they just seeded the buckwheat right into it in the spring. Root temperature, 20 degrees is 68 degrees Fahrenheit. OK, so this is what I'm saying here. Physiological temperature, you can see that even cooler is not bad. Slightly warmer is not bad. But then we get up here, and we start getting into the you know, higher 70s, 80s, and, we start, and it starts to get bad. So we want to armor up because mycorrhizas are working best at that temperature, too. Plants and nutrients. This is what plants do. They actually exude phosphorus-mobilizing carboxylates. That's an organic acid. They actually do things like send out chelators to get iron and zinc. Mycorrhizas do some of that, too. And they do all the combination of the above. So if you have different plants that can do different amounts of this, why wouldn't you want them together? Because you want all of this. You can take advantage of all of this by using plants. All of it. Including this stuff down here to manage your weeds. So total PLFA is a measure that you can use to measure the total amount of living biomass. Total amount of living microbial biomass. So that's just these numbers here. Total amount of living biomass, microbial biomass in the soil. This is cereal rye. This is um, broadcast nitrogen. This is injected, spoke injected anhydrous. This is um, a cereal, um, a forage rape and a clover mix. This is a maize pro, which is a cover crop specifically for corn. This is corn and mustard grown together, corn after mustard, and this is corn on corn. Okay, how many, a lot of you out there are doing this, and you wonder why things aren't working. You have to use more fertilizer. Well, look at that. Okay. Now, there's one thing I want to say about this. You see, this is the total amount of microbial biomass. These numbers are bigger. Now, as we go forward, you'll see that this doesn't look too bad right now. That's because you have to look at all of it together. You can't look at just bacterial-fungal ratios and go, you know something, because you don't. You don't know anything unless you see the whole picture. So um, a friend of mine that I work with from South Africa says, you've got to watch the whole movie. So we got to watch the whole movie. We want an 8 to 10 ratio. That's kind of ideal. So where are we with there? 
This one is really high. There's too much bacteria there. Way too much bacteria, not enough fungi. This one's really nice. Lower is always better because we have more fungi. Now, what's happened here? Predators. This is anhydrous. Um, this one had more roots. The, the um, oilseed rape is kind of um, the forage rape, oilseed radishes and stuff, they do promote a lot of predators, but they also um, promote a lot of soil animals that feed on these guys too. So that's kind of an interesting one. Of course, there's nothing there. Um, and a beneficial rhizosphere. People go, well, you know, I've got disease problems and stuff. Your plants are trying to take care of themselves. Lupins are amazing. They actually form these roots. When they don't get enough phosphorus, they form these roots. And they form them overnight. Like within 12 hours, they'll form all these roots that just pulsing acid out into the soil to get phosphorus. We take a lesson from nature. Cheatgrass, downy brome, bromus japonica. These are terrible weeds that everybody experiences, including dandelions in here, too. What are dandelions an indicator of? Available potassium. They love potassium. They just soak it up. You get a problem with dandelions, there you are. What's really interesting here is they stop the conversion of ammonia to nitrate. But native grasses, on the other hand, promote it. See, plants are active. They're actually doing stuff. They're trying it. Why are these plants doing this? They're defending territory. They're keeping everybody out and taking it for themselves. It's war out there. OK, breeders. You, you know, this is amazing. In Germany, they have their national field day. And it's really fun. Um, every second year they have it. They just had it this June. And you go there, and every seed company has all their plants growing in trays like this. And they're all showing the roots. They give you the yield number, and then they give you, and then you actually get to see them growing. So you can pick the varieties you want, and you can say, well, I want more roots, I want less roots, I mean, and I want more top growth, or what's more balanced. I mean, I'm looking at these two here and going, well, I, I kind of like those two. Um, so you got to look at stuff like that. One of the things is, the other thing, too, I said early on, is that I'd like to see us make nutrient density, bring that back start thinking about that and making that essential to what we do as farmers. I threw this in to see how many people are awake. What is this? These are pistachios. Yeah, they're growing on a tree. So I just thought every, I mean, it's just one of those trivial things. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I, well, actually, I got to say, it's just because when I was, they were like, wow, what is that? And I was like, oh, man, those are pistachios. I'm going to take a picture of that, and I'm going to put them up and see if other people know that these are pistachios. OK. Food quality. Agriculture um, really has not been held accountable for this output. And I think we need to. And I think we need to start going there. And I think we can do that with healthy soil. OK, I know I'm looking pretty proud in this photo. Um, but uh, that's a 90 bushel wheat crop on dry land. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty proud. <laughs> And it, and it went 15% protein, so I'm really liking it now. Um, mean, uh, this is an experiment I did in Lethbridge. And all I want you to see is that if you are growing anything on, like corn on corn or wheat on wheat or anything like that, that's what this is going to look like here. Now, if you compare this number to this number, if you compare 
And, and what's interesting here is in the organics, this has a legume cover crop in it. So it's wheat on wheat on wheat, but it has a legume cover crop in between. Now you notice that all these numbers are the same, except this one really is terrible. And that one actually, um, yeah, it's all disappeared up there. Okay. Um, this is actually uh, phosphorus. This is the phosphorus number in the grain. So you can see that when we don't have a legume, we're not supporting the mycorrhizas as well. We do this. Um, this one looks good because this is continuous wheat here and with full inputs, and we just keep adding and adding and adding. This one's low input. Everything that's low input is, um, is no-till. Everything that's organic is tilled. Now we get here. Now we start looking at these numbers here. Yeah, this is calcium here. And what's gone on here? Multiple species cover crop. Multiple species cover crop. Multiple species cover crop. Multiple species cover crop. These blue is multiple species cover crop. And you see what starts happening is we start to get really, this is copper, this is zinc, this is calcium, magnesium, and this is potassium here. You start to see the, what's happening with the numbers. And you remember I said that it's the legumes that drive everything? You put a legume in the rotation, like we do here, and everything starts to even up. This one is just wheat. This is wheat and a fallow, actually. This is wheat on wheat with full nutrient inputs, and we just kept making sure we were topped up. So it's easy. You can top it up. It just costs money. This didn't cost nearly as much money as this. This, ro this rotation of four crops didn't cost as much money as this. So I'm going to talk about wheat because that's what I know. I know this to be true also for corn. But when you have more nitrogen available to the wheat, you get more protein, sure, but you get less essential amino acids. Lysine is absolutely critical for people. You get fewer carbohydrates that can be used to convert to vitamin C. So this is about nutrient efficiency. We want enough to do, make what we need, but we really want to pay attention to this and this. The other thing is I use a lot of ammonium sulfate, and the reason I do that is because it increases the thiamine content, which is a B vitamin, in my grain. So that's the other thing. I can manipulate a lot of this. This is fun. You can manipulate a lot of things. You can manipulate, manipulate what grows in your soil. You can manipulate the whole microbial community in there. You can create this amazing soil structure. And now we can start to play with what actually grows in our plants. And then you can get something that happens like this, where you actually get in the newspaper that says, wow, you know, bread's actually good for you because it's got enough nutrients in it. You can say that my corn is really great for you. And you can say my soybeans have more oil content or they're better for you. Um, I know that a lot of us are using it, it goes into industry and stuff, but actually my wheat that I'm growing actually grows into flour, and I know it goes into flour because I'm part of Shepherd's Grain. So mine is going into the flour, so I know that. So I'm paying attention to that. So it's one of those things, and that is like, you know, more and more I hear people talking about those unique opportunities to market. This is another unique mar opportunity to market, and we always need to look for that because where is the value? in value-added processing. We'd like to sincerely thank Rhizoterra Principal Scientist Jill Clapperton for the in-depth details she shared about the components of healthy soils and the importance of soil function to improved nutrient mineralization and uptake, healthier plants, and better yields. 
For those listeners who would like to hear more about successful strategies for no-tilling, please visit notillfarmer.com slash podcasts. Again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing Company, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, feel free to drop me an email at jdoberstein at lessitermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2430. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with the farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and on our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For Jill Clapperton, Yetter Manufacturing Company, and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Senior Editor John Doberstein. Thank you for listening.